Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 29 through 39. So Matthew 15, 29 through 39. Once you're there, please stand as we read God's word together. And these are the words of God. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And you may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. So when we're preaching through narrative sections of scripture, I always try to find it helpful to remind us what we looked at last week so that we can keep the story moving in our heads and so that we see these not as disconnected parts but as a unified whole of scripture. So last week we saw a Canaanite woman who was desperate to receive mercy from the Lord Jesus and Jesus seems to at least at first push her away and set up multiple roadblocks for her in coming to him. But she presses through in faith uh, and receives her request. She was brought so low as to even see herself as a dog, content to eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Jesus' own words. And so technically speaking, this event was still happening in the Old Covenant era. So even though we're in the New Testament, even though we're dealing with Jesus, in one sense, the Old Covenant system is still running because we have not yet arrived at the crucifixion and at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So it's still news to people. It's still a a significant paradigm shift that non-Israelites would be blessed by the Savior of Israel. But this woman, this Canaanite woman, this Gentile woman, has understood the meaning of the miracles that Matthew has recorded. And the miracle of feeding the 5,000 that happened before that is in the same vein as the miracles of Elijah and Elisha in which God's supply never runs out. And so this woman that we looked at last week knew that the mercy of Christ has no end. She understood the lesson in the miracle. And she was happy to take the crumbs off the table. And Christ healed her daughter and then moves on. And that's where we are picking it up today. So that just happened. From there, Jesus gets up in verse 29. It says uh, that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So he was at the Sea of Galilee for the feeding of 5,000. Now he goes up to Tyre and Sidon, to a Canaanite region. He heals this woman's daughter, and now he's going back southeast again to the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. 
And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus has headed, headed back to the sea. And in Mark's parallel passage of this account, you can read about it in Mark 7 if you want, we're told specifically where along the Sea of Galilee Jesus went, and it was to Decapolis, which was a Gentile region on the sea. So he went up to a Gentile region, Tyre and Sidon, and now he comes back down to a Gentile region, to Decapolis, along the Sea of Galilee. And we're told again that he goes up on a mountain and sits down. And this is the pattern that we've been seeing repeatedly. Uh, And this has significance in terms of this being a teaching moment as well. Because mountains are where people go in the Bible to ascend up to God and where God cuts covenants with them. Where God is ready to deal with man, it happens frequently on a mountain. And we sometimes still talk that way in our own language today, right? We talk about a mountaintop experience, right? We've, we've been lifted up to see something from a better and higher vantage point. So mountains are significant. When Jesus goes up to a mountain, we should be reminded that Eden itself was on a mountain. God started creation and his dealings with man on a mountain. It talks about Eden as though these four rivers flow down from it. So we're up top. So creation starts on a mountain. Noah, after the flood, restarts creation from on top of a mountain. Moses goes up on a mountain to receive law. The temple gets built on a mountain. Christ is here delivering his sermons on mountains. And ultimately he will be crucified on a mountain. And so this is significant when Christ climbs up on a mountain. He's saying something essentially even about his own authority and about uh, God working in history, doing something in history now, uh, and he is on a mountain to proclaim it. So he just ministered to the single Gentile woman, and now he's back in front of a large crowd. So we're moving from ministering to one to ministering to many. And it seems to be a large crowd of Gentiles. And there's a hint, even, even though it's Mark who says exactly where Jesus is, there's a hint even in here, in this narrative, that he is among Gentiles. And that's in verse 31, where it says that these people glorified the God of Israel. In other words, they didn't glorify their own domestic gods. They, uh, they glorified a foreign god. The God of Israel is the... So it's suggesting these are not Israelite people. And this is a further hint at the abundant supply that Christ himself is offering. He is giving himself to one group of people, but that doesn't mean that there's not much more left over for other groups. Okay? So, and we've been seeing that repeatedly. Just because some get something from Jesus doesn't mean there's left, less left over for the rest. And these people, this big crowd that comes to him, are coming with all kinds of ailments, and they're left at his feet. And so this isn't Jesus walking through a city and finding these people. They're being brought to him. They're being brought to his feet. So there's like a large crowd surrounding him and asking for mercy the same way that this Canaanite woman had, except it's a large crowd instead of just one. But here, the healing comes much easier than it did for this woman. She had to press through, she had to push through several roadblocks that Jesus set in front of her. He was running interference on her and she just kept pressing through. Here, there's no such hint of Jesus running interference on these people. He just receives them in. And just as the Canaanite woman has called Jesus Lord, and she also calls him the son of David, these people glorified the God of Israel. 
And in both of these confessions, both the confession of this Canaanite woman calling Jesus Lord and the Son of David, and in these people's confession of glorifying the God of Israel for what Jesus is doing, we're seeing something significant happen. Because note this carefully. Jesus went to the lost house of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel, and they are rejecting him. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand what he's doing. He's a different kind of savior than what their man-made traditions uh, have led them to expect. He is the kind of savior that Abram and Noah and Moses saw, but he's not the kind of savior that their pastors were telling them about. Okay? So Jesus is different than what they were expecting, and therefore he gets rejected among his own people. So in response to this, Jesus leaves, and a Gentile woman acknowledges him correctly. And note the significance of that. Jesus' own people have no idea who he is, and a Gentile woman gets it. And the confession that comes out of her mouth says she gets it when the scribes and the Pharisees do not. And now we have a large group of people who is glorifying the God of Israel because of what Jesus is doing. And think of it, this is one of those things you might just read over, but then think about it. This crowd of unbelieving people, this crowd of Gentiles, sees a man like me or you, so clearly he can't be God if he's a man, right? They see this man going through and healing, and they glorify the God of Israel. These people are starting to develop a Trinitarian theology. They're starting to see a connection between this man and the God of Israel. Okay? So these people are quickly uh, progressing through a class on the Trinity and on Christology. And Jesus' own people, the scribes and the Pharisees, are struggling their way through remedial law of Moses and failing miserably. That's quite remarkable. Okay? The Pharisees don't catch on to Moses 101. These people have moved on to Christology and Trinitarian theology because they're connecting the man, Jesus, with the God of Israel. And that is very significant, that these eyes are starting to be opened even as God lets the Israelites sink into their hardness and their darkness. So these Gentile people are correctly connecting Jesus and the actions of the God of Israel. And that is highly significant. They're they're understanding the meaning of the miracles. And again, I can't stress this enough. Miracles are not just tricks. They're lessons. They're applied theology. They're teaching things. Then in verse 32, it goes on and says, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus has been healing here for three days, it says. And these people are so committed to being ministered to by Jesus that they're willing to go without food for three days. Think about that. I knew we were going to Montana's last night, so I skipped breakfast and lunch. And I was pretty ready for supper by the time I got in from the barn. Okay? Now imagine going three days, three days without food, just because you are so enraptured by the Savior that you want to be with him. And I'll stop there to make an immediate point of application as we have been encouraging Bible reading and personal devotions and stuff as a church. These people went three days without food to be near the Savior. And so I'm just going to ask you, not in a guilt-tripping way, but in a way that makes you think about your affections. 
How many of us have found 15 minutes a day with food and water nearby to be in the Word? Okay? I, I often will point out, I am a slow reader. I love reading, but I am a very slow reader. And in 15 minutes a day, I get through the Bible every year. Okay? These people have gone three days without food to be near Jesus. Have you found 15 minutes to order your affections and to get oriented to the Word of God in a day? And it's not too late to start. You can easily catch up. We're only on the, what are we, the seventh today? It's easy to catch up. 15 minutes a day, you can get through the Bible even if you're slow like me. And whatever that looks like, Bible reading or other practices that we put into our lives, the goal here is to see the supreme value of Jesus Christ, to set your concerns aside and to see him for who he is. These people have gone without food for three days. They clearly see something special. And we need to too. Do you see Jesus as special? Do you see Jesus as worth putting everything on the back burner? Set it all aside. Money, time, relationships, whatever. Do you see the supreme value of Jesus Christ? Okay? We need that, not just in our head knowledge, but we need our hearts to grow in affection and to be reordered properly so we can understand our world properly and lay everything at the feet of King Jesus. And Christ does not want to send these people away after their three-day fast of being with him for fear that they will faint. And so Jesus is setting up another cliffhanger here. Just like he had resisted the Canaanite woman until it was time to rescue her, just like Jesus and God often tells these stories, God loves cliffhanger stories, God loves to set the deck against him, make it completely impossible for himself to deliver, and then he delivers in a way that nobody expects. Okay? This is the kind of storyteller that God is. He always stacks the deck against himself and then he delivers. And these people have gone hungry for three days. It's like he's holding them over the cliff before he gets ready to feed them. He could have done this miracle at any time. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did he wait? Why did he wait? He could have fed them breakfast on day one. Could have fed them lunch on day one. Could have fed them supper on day one. Could have done it all again on day two and on day three. Why is he waiting? Why does he wait? Why did he push back? Why did he resist the Canaanite woman and make it impossible for her to come to him until it was the right time? Think about that. I think Christ's lessons often get driven deeply because he is so intentional to let us sit in our need for long enough. Okay? And, and that is frequently the case. And I would say that's the case in my life and, and I'm sure it's the case in your life as well that part of the lesson is you need to sit in the desperate need for long enough that you appreciate the deliverance that happens. Okay? If Jesus had just rolled out the red carpet for Israel to leave Egypt, they would have learned nothing. He made it hard. At, well, I guess they still learn nothing. But <laughs> at least they have no excuse for learning nothing, right? Uh, frequently, we need to sit in it for long enough that we appreciate the cure and give God the glory for it. So these people have been allowed to hunger despite Jesus having the ability to feed them for three days. He's holding them over the cliff to see their need. And this way, they should not take their deliverance lightly. Calvin, commenting on this idea, says that men will never worship God with a sincere heart, nor be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Okay? You need to feel it so that you can appreciate gifts. 
that come from the hand of God. That's why God never seems to be in a rush. I'm guessing if we go through this room, very few of you would say, yeah, God always moves faster than I'd like him to, (laughs) right? I'd like to slow things down, and yet God's always in a rush. Who could say that? I can't, (laughs) okay? I'm the one who's in a rush. God seems to leave, leave me waiting often. So when Christ is holding you over the edge, and it feels like you have not been fed in far too long, he is doing it for our own good. He's doing it so that we learn for long enough not to presume on ourselves or to start feeling self-sufficient. That's why he moves slowly. And so Christ has let three days pass without feeding this crowd, but now it is time to feed them. It's time to send them home, and he's unwilling to send them out in this state. And I would even make application to uh, the, the form of liturgy that we practice here, covenant renewal worship. What's the very last thing we do before we go out? is on those Sundays where we take communion, God feeds us, okay? And that's a fitting picture. God feeds us before he sends us out, okay? The whole form of our liturgy is designed to follow the patterns of the Bible, right? The call to worship is saying, come on in. I've got news for you guys. Come in, Abram, okay? And then he sits us down. He shows us who we are, and he shows us who he is. And that's what confession of sin and assurance of pardon are all about, and then he, uh, he instructs us. He, he helps us to understand something important. And that's what preaching and that's what Bible study are. And then he sends us out with a commission or with a charge. He sends us out with our marching orders for the week. But before he does that, he feeds us. Okay? Learning from the Bible is a form of feeding. But getting actual wine and bread is another form of that reminder that Christ feeds us. He doesn't send you away empty-handed. He doesn't tell you to go make bricks without straw. He feeds us before he sends us out. Verse 33, it goes on to say, And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a sound, so great a crowd? Isn't this great? It's like a week ago Jesus did something like this. And isn't it remarkable that they'd ask this kind of a question? Uh, how are we going to feed this great big crowd? Do you remember last week? Do you guys remember anything I'm teaching you here? Okay, so it is a curious statement. Just days ago, Jesus fed an even larger crowd than this one with five loaves and two fish, and surely they should remember this. And they should not doubt his ability to do something that they can't predict or that they can't foresee. They shouldn't doubt his ability. And so the question in that way is odd. But we should also note, to give them a little bit of credit, that they maybe are learning something. This is an improvement. Last time, in the feeding of the 5,000, they tell Jesus what to do. This time it's at least a question. How are we going to do this? Right? So maybe they are learning a little bit. They're not telling Jesus what he needs to do now. They're asking what needs to happen. It sounds like a bit of a faithless question, but it's an improvement. They're getting there. We see some progress in their mindset, in their understanding. And Jesus answered them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, and his disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after, sending them away, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Okay, and so this all sounds very familiar. If it feels 
like you've heard this sermon before, that's probably because I had to prepare this sermon before, <laughs> roughly, at the beginning of December. But this is a kind of a repeat miracle. This is a repeat story. And I'm going to suggest that it's not by accident that we get this story so close twice, back to back. Because the pattern largely follows. The crowd is told to sit, okay? And so this settles down the crowd. This quiets down the crowd and puts everyone in a receptive posture. Okay, this crowd, and remember, this is 4,000 men. So if the typical one of those men brought along his wife and his four children, we're dealing with 20-ish thousand people, okay? We're not dealing with 4,000. We're dealing with 20,000. We're dealing with 4,000 men, plus their wives and their children. So Jesus is just saying, okay, everyone sit down, calm down. We need to quiet this thing down. In the past miracle, he breaks them up into groups of 50 so that they're easier to serve. But he's bringing the temperature down. He's calming things down. And then he gives thanks to God for the food. And again, I mentioned last time, but this is a, a fitting pattern that we ought to continue to repeat in our own homes when we receive food from God. To pray at mealtime is fitting. To remember that the food we have that we take for granted actually does come from God's hands. And if you're thinking, yeah, but I worked for it, right. And who gave you those hands to work with? Okay. Who gave you work? Who made this all possible? Who, who made it so that your customers have money to pay you for your work? Okay. This is all from God's hands. And so even to the degree that we are involved in the process, our attitude ought to be one of always thanksgiving. Thank God for the food. Thank him for the money that made the food possible. Thank him for the work that made the money possible. Thank him for the customer that made the work possible. And thank him for the work that that person has to pay you. There's no stopping. This goes all the way up to the top of God's providence. And so Christ offers a prayer of thanksgiving, which we ought to do to this day when we eat. And sitting down as a family, in our families for meals, taking our needs to God in prayer, and doing family devotions around the table are all customs which ought to be repeated. We ought to remain in that pattern to this very day. And for those of us who are fathers, this is especially important that we make sure that we initiate, that this is happening, okay? That we do get in the word as a family, that we talk about these things and that we pray as a family. And again, this is repetitive from four or five weeks ago when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, but it's in here for a reason, okay? It's in here for a reason, and perhaps that is helpful in terms of showing us the pattern that we see uh, in Scripture generally. So once again, just like the last time, Christ gets the food to the people through the disciples. Okay? And this again shows us that God is often pleased to use means to bring about His end. Children get fed by God, but through mom and dad. Okay? And uh, those who are going to take communion in church uh, get fed by God, ultimately, but through the elders of a church serving you. And so this pattern can teach us. It's obvious that God is the ultimate source of all good things, and yet he does use instruments. He uses means. He uses tools in his normal way of action. Okay, And so uh, we should never think about the sovereignty of God as though it's somehow opposed to the reaping and sowing principle. The reaping and sowing principle exists because of the sovereignty of God. That's the kind of world he made in which he sovereignly controls the relationships between reaping and sowing. So these ideas are not enemies on some kind of spectrum and we have to pick somewhere in the middle. This is the same idea. 
God's providence, reaping and sowing, is the same idea. And we see it in the way God feeds these people. The disciples are serving as God's agents. Just as the elders of this church are going to similarly serve this body as God's agents. And just when you go home and feed your children, mom and dad are also God's agents in the household. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were five loaves and two fish. And here we have seven loaves and a few fish. And there's several possibilities as to the significance of some of these numbers. The Bible uses numbers, and we have to be careful here. Sometimes people get into weird speculation. Or sometimes, uh, and this is something I want to constantly guard against, sometimes theological liberals are quick to point out that miracles and, and numbers and stuff mean things in the Bible, and so then they divorce it from history. Oh, well, 40 years in the desert, that, you know, 40 is a significant number, so we, therefore we know it wasn't 40 years in the desert. It's just a symbolic number. No. Again, God's providence is tied to reaping and sowing. Yes, 40 is symbolic. That's why he took 40 years in actual history <laughs> to do this. Okay? Never separate facts from meaning. Okay? We do that all the time in our culture. Okay? We do it all the time. And sometimes conservative Christians get so caught up in the historical accuracy that we forget what this means. Okay? And that's actually what the Pharisees do. They get so caught up in literalism that they forget that things mean stuff. Okay? History has meaning. So don't just say, oh, okay, well, those liberals deal with symbols, and so we'll just deal with facts. No, 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 no. Facts are symbolic. Okay? We, we see this together. So by pointing out the significance of these numbers, we're not saying, oh, so therefore there wasn't 4,000 people. No, no, there was. And here's why God assembled a crowd of that size. Because numbers are symbolic. These things are symbolic. So never separate meanings from facts. It's God's world, God's rules. In the feeding of the 5,000, there's 12 baskets left over, and it says it's one for each disciple. And that's connected with the fact that when God established the nation of Israel, he used 12 men under the headship of their covenant head, Jacob or Israel. Remember, Israel, before it's a country, before it's a nation, is a man. Jacob, the man, one solitary man, is named Israel. Okay? So before there's a nation, there's a man Israel. Israel is a person, a singular person, before there's a nation. And now, when God is establishing his kingdom on earth through Jesus, the new covenant Christian church, he likewise starts this new creation with 12 men under the headship of Jesus, the true Israel, one man. Before there's a nation, there's a singular man. Before there's a kingdom, there's one singular king. There's true Israel before there's a nation. And here again, there's true Israel before there's a kingdom. And this kingdom is much more expansive and is not defined by ethnicity but by faith. Jesus Christ is making up a new humanity of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And in this instance, we have seven baskets left over, which is the biblical number for fullness or completion. It's a, it's a number of perfection in Scripture. And so it may also be of significance that the first miracle starts with five fish, and this one with seven, which gives us another instance of twelve, of twelveness, another picture of fullness. And yet these stories are so similar, they're so close together, even in the way they're organized in the gospel, they're just so close. Why tell the same story twice? And so few details, but significant details, have changed. Why tell the same story twice? In the first miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, this is performed for a Jewish crowd. 
And in this miracle, it's performed for a heavily Gentile crowd. And it's also noteworthy that this miracle of feeding happens right on the heels of the incident with the Canaanite woman. She's happy to receive crumbs off the children's table. And she just gets one crumb. She's just one woman. She gets one crumb. And she is commended for understanding what all these miracles mean. She understood that the miracles had been teaching about the abundance of God's provision, of abundant mercy, abundant providence. And when God feeds his children, there is surplus that falls to the ground that others can receive as well. So the Canaanite woman was a single Gentile, and this crowd is predominantly Gentile. And so what we're seeing here is progress from a single woman receiving a single crumb to a small city receiving a full meal. The same full meal that the children just received at the table. Okay? So Jesus moves from a full table of his children, teaches a lesson about this single woman and the expansive purposes of God, and now God just makes it that much bigger. Because now there's a city of the Canaanite woman, and they're receiving just exactly the same that the children received earlier. This is progress. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing in rebuilding humanity. There's actually far more than crumbs that come to these Gentiles. There's full inclusion and full inheritance at the table for non-Jews as well in this new people that Christ is establishing. The Gentiles are receiving bread from heaven alongside the Jews. And this miracle is teaching Gentile equity in the kingdom of God. Gentiles are full members. Tim read about it this morning in John, uh, Jesus' bread of heaven sermon. All those who come receive bread. And how do they come? Not by ethnicity, but by faith. Okay? If you want the bread from heaven, you come by faith. And these people are receiving bread from heaven. So the move from one woman to a large crowd has application for us as well. I think, as a church. And certainly for me personally, I was convicted when I thought about this. Many young men who have a desire to go to seminary or to get involved in ministry... Uh, it's far more common for theologically inclined young guys to want to teach theology at seminary than it is for them to pastor or to be a missionary. Why is that? Why is that? That's interesting. Why do these guys want to be professional theologians but they don't want to pastor a church or they don't want to go to a foreign mission field? I think there's a few things that say that. I'll say this. Preparing a sermon for a hundred and 20, 150, whatever shows up on a Sunday morning here, is actually no more work than preparing a sermon for 12,000. It's the exact same amount of work, okay? So the bigger the crowd, in one sense, the more efficient it seems. And just teaching a class in seminary and doing a brain dump leaves you completely removed from all the trouble that people are having in real life, okay? The church is much more connected to the purposes of God in terms of interrelationships, And in the real world, discipleship doesn't work like a brain dump, okay? Like someone can just go up and teach theology for an hour, and I'm not discrediting theology at all. But it's not just a brain dump. There's actual relationships that have to be carved out. There's actual one-on-one conversations that have to happen, and that, frankly, is incredibly inefficient, okay? If we're living in Henry Ford's world, that is not efficient at all. Six appointments of getting together for coffee with someone one-on-one is far less efficient than me spending Thursday afternoon writing a sermon and then coming here and delivering it. But Jesus does both. Jesus does both. He has time for the one, 
and he preaches to the crowd. So we should never carve it up as though one is somehow more important than the other. We need both. Before Christ went up to this audience of 15 or 20,000 or whatever it was and started mass ministry, he went out of his way to find a single woman. Right? We have parables to that effect too. Sometimes it's time to leave the 99 sheep aside and go find the one. Okay? And that's not just the pastor's job either. And it's not just the elder's job. If you can hear my voice this morning, that's your job. That's your job. Okay? Is someone close by you struggling? Well, you need to take time for one-on-one encouragement, one-on-one discipleship. Discipleship is more than a brain dump. Preaching is more than a brain dump. Okay? And I want to make special application to those of us who are coming from a reformational understanding. Many people have found reformed Christianity, especially more recently, because they've been rightly, correctly, fed up and tired and impatient with the soft, gimmicky preaching and the multimedia presentations instead of the exposition of God's word, okay, and the clown show that uh, so many engage in, and they're just tired of it, and they just say, just feed me expository preaching from God's word, and that is absolutely right and good. And Reformed Christianity is muscular, It is masculine. It does have some hard edges that refuse to be filed down, and that is good. And sometimes what happens is that young men get so filled with the bravado and the masculinity that they forget that Jesus also has time for a woman. This isn't just about winning debates. This isn't just about being muscular. And I am all in favor of winning debates, and I am all in favor of young men being muscular, with their minds as well as with their bodies. Okay, but this isn't an either-or. Christian discipleship involves preaching to the crowd and taking time for a struggling saint. Okay, this is a both-and, not an either-or. Christian discipleship sometimes looks awfully inefficient. So all of us have a duty to engage in one-on-one friendship, one-on-one mentorship, one-on-one encouragement. And God sends people to serve you, but he also serves people to you to be served by you. And so I want to say, don't waste these opportunities. We're going to keep preaching and teaching at church, at the broad level, and we're not going to take our foot off the gas. It's going to keep being what you've been getting, okay? But let's not forget one-on-one discipleship. Let's not forget loving your neighbors well and taking time for them. And this is something I've been convicted of more and more in my own ministry, taking time for those less efficient things because I love progress, I love efficiency, I love checking things. I just, it's such an adrenaline rush for me. And God's teaching me life doesn't work that way. Sometimes it does, but not usually. Not usually. Jesus is teaching here about the full inclusion of these Gentile people. They're on an equal footing. They get the same full meal that the Jews did. And he starts it by taking time for this one Canaanite woman who's just happy for crumbs. And now he sets the whole table for these children, these new Gentile children that he is bringing into his kingdom as well. Christ is following the plan. And he's following it perfectly. He starts, he goes first to ethnic Israel. And when they reject him, he goes to the Gentiles. And the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God provokes ethnic Israel to come back to Christ 
before he returns again. That's the logic of Romans 11. The Gentiles come in and it's going to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And there's a picture of large-scale Jewish conversion to God. That's the logic here. And we're at that time in history where the Gentiles are coming in and the Jews evidently have not yet been provoked to jealousy to come back in. But we have every confidence that they will. God is rebuilding a multi-ethnic people. And so nobody is in because of their genetics. Each one who is in the kingdom is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even when we look at those promises that Israel comes back in in Romans 11, it's actually not because they're Israelites. It's because Israelites are going to be given the gift of faith. Okay? It's still not genetics. It's still not national identity. It's still not about geopolitical boundaries. It's about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all we have there is a promise that God is going to be pleased to do that on a large scale, and he has not forgotten those people that he started working with. Sharing a meal together is a genuine symbol of the unity that we share. God has fed Jews, and he has fed Gentiles, and he has done it the same way. And we're going to move into a picture of that this morning. This miracle happened 2,000 years ago in Decapolis, and it's going to happen again this morning in Ildashane, Manitoba, and in tens of thousands of other towns around the world this morning. And so as we move to communion, let's be mindful of the things that God has taught us about table fellowship and the providence of God. Christ waited a really long time to feed the 4,000. And maybe you've been struggling this week or this month or this year with various challenges that just will not go away. And it feels like God has been holding you over the cliff for long enough now, and it's quite okay if things start to change here, Lord. But regardless of what's been happening in your life, Christ has invited you here this morning, and he is ready to feed you now. If he can turn seven loaves and a few small fish into food that feeds a crowd of 4,000 men, women, and children in addition to that, then he can take care of your needs as well. And so no matter how difficult or how unlikely a situation seems, we do have a sovereign God whose providential care reaches down to the smallest details. And he will not withhold his grace from you for the situations that you are facing. Jesus gave thanks, as we all need to do as well. He sits the crowd down so that even their bodily posture is teaching them something important. We receive when we sit. We first receive so we can go out to work. We don't go out in order to receive. Jesus feeds the crowd so that they don't faint on the way. Okay, That's what he's doing here too. Before he sends you out, he's going to feed you. So you don't faint on the way as you fulfill the charge that he's given you for the days and the weeks ahead. And he's also going to put other people into your lives. Some of which are going to minister to you and some of which need to be ministered to by you in a personal, inefficient way. And lastly, we need to remember that there is always more than enough. If we have learned nothing else from Matthew 14 and 15, it's that God's supply never runs out. More blessing for one does not mean less blessing for you or for another. God is not redistributing a fixed amount of blessing that he has put. He creates fresh mercies every morning. And so as we move to communion, I'll ask the elders to come up and then let's have a, a time of silent prayer as we consider what we talked about in Sunday school this morning and here, both in terms of keeping short accounts with God 
of repenting as the ongoing duty of a Christian, uh, and also how God is pleased to feed his children. So I'll uh, leave us for a time of silent prayer as we clean things up. And if you need to, before you take communion this morning, in good conscience, if you need to clean something else up with somebody else, there is nothing wrong with passing the plate by. Okay? It's good to pass the plate by if you're not ready. Okay? Make things right so you can receive. Let's pray.